welcome to Tales of the Resistance, a podcast about antimicrobial resistance. On today's show, we're joined by a rotating lineup of members of the I Am Responsible Project, a nationwide team of educators and researchers working on solutions to AMR. I'm Amber, one of the hosts, and I'm joined today by Mara. Hey, everybody. And Beth. Hi, everybody. Today, we'll be discussing articles that we've read recently about antimicrobial resistance in contemporary culture. We'll be sharing our insights and hopefully getting some insights from our audience as well. Today, I'll be talking about an article that I read that I found quite interesting and it's titled, 80-Year-Old Antibiotic May Become a Weapon Against Drug-Resistant Bacteria. The article states that an 80-year-old abandoned antibiotic may be a useful treatment against drug-resistant bacteria. The development of the antibiotic norcythricin was halted decades ago due to potential toxicity to kidneys. However, researchers say medical advances may now make it possible to use the drug. John Kapsunik Uner said, medications can work better now because of advances in purification and synthetic methods, as well as the implementation of alternative dosing strategies of routes of administration. This would allow researchers to continue exploring the use of neurocythricin as a treatment against drug-resistant bacteria because of purification and dosing methods preventing renal failure. So I found this really interesting because it's really exciting, the prospect of using a drug that's already been developed, but kind of shelved because of its side effects. And then it makes me wonder what other, what other antibiotics are out there that we might be able to use as a weapon against drug-resistant bacteria. Yeah, I agree, Amber. Very interesting. Very interesting one. Definitely opens up the minds to the possibilities. I have no idea how many are out there still that were like shelved essentially because of whatever side effects. So it would be interesting. And the idea of combining antibiotics in a different way, just the idea that there's some of these possibilities out there is interesting. They might be able to, they might be able to slow down the spread of AMR. They won't ultimately be able to hold it back since the microbes are constantly going to be adapting to antibiotics and gaining resistance. But I think it feels a little bit um, relieving, almost like there's like a safety net, a little bit of a safety net that they might be able to bring when there's diseases out there where, you know, they're coming to the place where they don't have many antibiotics left that can fight them. And Mm -hmm. when we know how long it takes to develop one and how quickly, like it could take a decade to develop an antibiotic. And um, And there's not the financial incentive to create yeah it's interesting the more I've learned about it I mean when I first when I first was learning about AMR I immediately thought well the pharmaceutical companies should just invest more you Mm -hmm. know that was my that was my thought I think I've talked about this in a podcast before they should just just do that you know I'm sure they have plenty of money but you know they're just not spending it on what they should be spending on selfishness anyway (laughs) no Um, I mean I I agree I still think that (laughs) but I've learned a lot more so I've learned about how and this isn't for every company because some of them are are very rich but there have been companies that have gone bankrupt Mm -hmm. making a antibiotic It's, it's a very risky Risky. It doesn't have a strong profit because of how how badly set up the system is. Right. You, know, you you finally, after decade of research, you have the antibiotic that actually does something, and then you get it onto the market, 
And then it immediately starts losing its value as far as how long it works, because you know, it only takes so long for bacteria to evolve. But more importantly, it's something you don't want to use because it starts losing its value the more you use it. So if you're paid for how much something is used and it's not getting used because it's the last line of resort, then that's not a good profit turn for you. Right. I was hearing about something. Now I can't remember what, but it was interesting because it was two companies were developing an antibiotic that was either very similar or like almost the same. It was a push and who was going to get it first. It was just like, oh my God, all those years of research, all that funding. And if, if what you have was just a little bit too similar to someone else's, they might say, nope. No, mm-hmm. you don't get any money for that you don't yeah that. that would be stressful that would to be say very, the least <laughs> very aggravating yeah yeah the article talks a lot about how and why this antibiotic can now be used because of purification and alternative dosing strategies I'll admit I don't completely understand that but I think it's very interesting now that those those opportunities are available and those methods can be used to make antibiotics whose side effects were once really adverse usable. There were, I think, four different forms of norisothricin and one was found to be more favorable in terms of halting kidney failure or keeping kidney failure from happening. So I found that interesting. I found that really Well, I mean, it's obviously it's pretty cool in the sense that they're able to reutilize something, you know, it's a sort of a sustainability model. But it also reflects on what you guys were talking about in the challenge of drug discovery. There's so many things that got abandoned along the way because first they discovered that it has antimicrobial effect, but then at some point during the clinical trials or the or even if they didn't get to clinical trials, they found that there is some problem with it. And so it's it's left off. But then the idea that now we're improving our ability to refine chemicals, to process chemicals, or or maybe to identify a problem and and maybe come up with some kind of paired dosage strategy that can alleviate that problem in subsequent pharmacological research, then you can go back to some of those things that you had been researching and had to abandon, and but there was a lot of investment in, and you can recoup that investment essentially by, all right, we can we don't have to go back to the very beginning. We're we're partially the way there. We're just going to make some approaches. And all this does is it saves us a little time. We're saving us time in the development. We're also saving time in the sense that the whole issue with antimicrobial resistance being naturally occurring means that we're never going to get rid of it. So it's always a race between the development of a new antibiotic resistance and the development of a new treatment for that antibiotic resistance. You never eliminate it altogether. And so there's this, okay, the ability for all of the stuff that we've talked about in this pot in these podcasts about like, what can we do as people as non researchers in antimicrobial development, our responsibility is essentially to slow down the resistance. We know that resistance will eventually develop. 
but we want to slow down the process of resistance development and of resistance spread. And while we're doing this, researchers are over here researching antibiotics. The problem with the economic models is that that research has been slow. But with things like this, it's a way to jumpstart research in some spaces and, and maybe speed it up a little bit while some other economic strategies are being attempted. So again, this is another thing where we've got everything in the kitchen sink approach. We need, we need everybody to be slowing down resistance and resistance spread. We need new economic models for how to encourage innovation of new antimicrobial classes. And we need to be looking at how we can refine and reuse research that wasn't promising in the past to more quickly develop some alternatives for now. So yet another conclusion to one of our discussions that comes with, well, it sounds like we all have a role to play. There isn't a single, single thing that we are gonna do. We're all gonna be doing something to address these big systemic problems like AMR. Well said. Well, thanks for diving into this article with me. I found it very interesting um, and encouraging. I hope you did too. And I want to thank my co-hosts for their insights. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. I named like four or five people that have had the most impact on what I, my taste, my opinions over the last 10 years, they're all podcasters. And are they experts on what they talk about? I don't know, but they're, you know, they can, they talk about it with, with a level of engagement mm -hmm. that I, that is appealing to me. And I don't know that we'll ever get there, but that's a sort of model that I think can be powerful for changing minds because it's changed mine. So I guess mm -hmm. that's, that's the goal, but gosh, <laughs> I, I am disappointed in my own <laughs> abilities to achieve it. Oh. oh, it's hard. Well, I mean, how many of those people are professional I mean, like, that's essentially their whole job is to do a podcast. No, maybe not that many. I'm trying to think of podcasts, you know, I've listened to in that style. A lot of times they're authors or uh, they're journalists um, or whatnot. But yeah, but they're communicators. They're communicators. But a lot of times, you know, it's not it's not oral communication that they're. Right. They have yeah. expertise in kind of making a plan for um, what thoughts are important to convey and so I think that I I probably want to make a better practice of that and so I was listening to a podcast the other day and they were doing a a movie draft about like favorite movies in different categories for a particular year so it's kind of a, a small competition that they were having amongst the hosts but they went off on a very long series of tangents about what makes somebody cool. Okay, nothing to do with the topic. But this <laughs> came up in every round of the draft where they re-referred to what is coolness, how do you define it, who's cool. Um, and they were having a sort of an argument, a pseudo argument. And, and so you could engage with the topic at hand, but you also had the feeling that 
what was happening was an actual conversation that they were having because they weren't always on task. Um, That's true. And obviously the podcast grew quite long. It was <laughs> 45 I, minutes of listening yeah. to the talk. And sometimes I was pretty angry at what they were saying. There was a sense of, I don't agree with you and you're being <laughs> quite rude about it. You know, <laughs> I don't know that I want to go so far as to create like to court controversy or or anger between the hosts yeah, yeah. but that there should be a uh, relaxed communication between the hosts I think is important mm-hmm. but also there is um an importance to the humor and entertaining part of it I mean I think you do have to have not just that the information is interesting or interestingly conveyed or even insightfully conveyed it's it's that there is a certain approachability in the delivery style that I think is important um so humility um humor Mm -hmm. um self-effacement those are all important (laughs) parts of how we talk about the topic as well as what we talk about so I think we do pretty good at those parts (laughs) humility the self-facement but the humor I don't know I don't know I'm laughing at things are other people finding it funny 